being trend followers. And I mean, we already are, are cognizant that, hey, our whole method is built on the idea that nobody knows where these markets are going. The, the fact that there can be enormous, unexpected, huge moves. Having one like that is a great reminder. Even if you'd made money on that move, you still need to go back and say, what if I hadn't? What if I'd had the opposite position? Because you could have. And then not only that is, I had the opposite position on, I lost money. What if it was worse? This is Scott Billington, co-founder and managing partner of Covenant Capital Management, and you are listening to my year in review on Top Traders Unplugged. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Welcome back, Scott, for this review of 2014, where we look at the big events from the point of view of your trading strategy. I want to explore the, the ups and the downs, as well as the big takeaway from what can only be described as a great year for systematic trading strategies in general. But as you know, just because you're systematic in your trading, it doesn't necessarily mean that your strategy deals with market events in a similar way. So I want to dive right into it and really just ask you to begin with, if you could tell me about 2014 from your perspective, how did the year evolve for your firm, but of course, in particular for, for your strategy? Well, Niels, first, thanks for having me on. Um, 2014 was a, was a good year for us. I would say uh, solidly above average, and certainly uh, it felt like a superlative year compared to really the 2011 to 2013 period for us. Sure. Um, the first seven months were like an extension of 2013 mm -hmm. where we were flat, um, <clears throat> maybe down slightly, but, but pretty much flat, not doing much, not a lot of trends. We did make some money and coffee and live cattle, I think, but those were mitigating losses again, as the primarily the currencies and energies move sideways. Um, starting in August, some of those bigger blocks of markets that we trade started to come out of the ranges that they'd had established in the last two or three years. And the rest of the year, I think we made money every month, the rest of the year, and quite a bit, particularly in September. Um, I think our profile, while similar to most trend followers, was a little bit different in that our biggest month was September, October, and I think other people's biggest month tended to be November. Right. Yeah. And speaking about those markets that finally came out of ranges, uh, which one in particular contributed to your your strong performance uh, in in the latter part of, of 2014 and maybe also you know which were the laggers well the the biggest 
most profit we had, I think, were long dollar and short some currencies. Sure. Um, obviously, we made some good money short energies. Mm-hmm. I think probably relative to other people, we maybe didn't make as much, and that's why some of our profit was more in September. And and I mean, we I think we we're up six or seven percent in November, but some others were up double digits, yeah. and we were up double digits in September. So I think that's some of that difference. Mm. Um, oddly enough, usually we made most of our money on the short side of things other than long dollar. Mm-hmm. And, you know, oddly enough, the last two huge years across more or less all CTAs were this year in 2008. And both of those were marked by a lot of profits on the short side. Um, as far as laggards, we didn't have, a you know, I think we got chopped up a little bit in the grains but for those four or five months, most stuff was was going pretty good. Sure, I mean clearly there were some big uh, moves uh, during the year, and and you mentioned uh, a couple of them. You mentioned coffee, you mentioned oil, and and I think that's certainly something that people will remember. Um, and I know this is not strictly something you do as a systematic uh, trader, um, but on the other hand, from a research point of view, sometimes it is. Uh, an exercise you have to go through, and that is kind of looking at things where you actually, looking back at it, felt that maybe we should have done a little bit better, you know, in this particular market or this type of, you know, model. If you have several different types of trend-following models, were there any of that that when you when you look back at the year where you said, yeah, maybe we we need to look into this a little bit? Um. You know, there are always things that we're trying to do better. Mm. And, and you know, I think we've got a pretty decent grasp of what the strengths and the weaknesses of our trading models are. And we're, we're always trying to obviously exacerbate those strengths and, and mitigate some of those weaknesses. Um, I think really this year was a testament to some of the changes and kind of evolutions and hopefully improvements that we've made in our model in the past you know, with our ongoing research and mm. that we were really able to keep our losses, you know, in the last three years, some, some people got, took severe losses. Sure. Sure. And, you know, in our original program, we had losing 12 months periods, but we did not have a losing calendar year. Mm. And, um, you know, in our aggressive program, I think our worst calendar year we kept everything every loss inside of five percent so from that perspective i think some of it was a nice validation of of certainly what we hope the various strategies would do and and then also particularly in 2014 you know we had three or four losing months but we kept them all under a percent yeah i mean in fact from april through july sure and yet, we were also, you know, a lot of times if you're constraining losses, the downside of that is I'm going to constrain profits. Mm. And some of our risk management stuff really worked pretty well. And, and not only were we able to keep those losses low, but as things started going well, we were able to, to maximize those returns. Yeah. I mean, it certainly goes to, to what you're saying there, because it, as far as I can tell, last year was the best year you've had in 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 10 years so so the the research yeah. certainly seemed to be paying off 
Well, I mean, yeah, but we there were also some nice trends. I mean, at the end of the day, you can only make what the markets give you. Sure. Or, or is possible to be made. So if nothing moves anywhere, particularly with our style, it's going to be very difficult for us to make money. Sure. Um, but yeah, this was a, this was a, a, you know, a very good year. And, you know, I'm looking back and, you know, our aggressive program made 29 and a half percent. And it's pretty similar, you know, in 08, 9 and 10, it made 27 and a half, 26, 25 and a half. So you're pretty much in the same ballpark as those. And then we had some bigger years than that in the mid 2000s. So, sure. I mean, it was a great year and the, and the markets moved well. And, and, you know, I guess if I was proud of something, oddly enough, it's that we lost very little during the, the bad periods. Yes. Sure. And yet, you know, if you if you look at it and you think okay the people who lose the least in the bad periods are probably going to make the least in the good periods and I'm going to have to take some trade off there yeah. yeah but and you know some of it is good fortune but but we you know this wouldn't have necessarily happen every time but I think we've done a nice job of of making a lot during the good periods and also mitigating the losses during the inevitable bad periods yeah. No, absolutely. I wanted to bring you back uh, uh, again a little bit to, to the year as such, because clearly there were some themes that played out that people will remember. 2014 uh, for, uh, we had the uh, problems in Ukraine, Russia, obviously oil. And of course, you and I are talking now in early 2015. And very, very recently, we had another theme that people will be talking about, which is what the Swiss National Bank decided to do by revaluating uh, the Swiss franc essentially, um, which obviously uh, have set some movements uh, starting in the financial markets. Now, I wanted you, because very often, and, and the purpose of the question is really the following, very often when people hear these things, they they will have a negative thought about it or bias about it. I mean, people thinking about what the Swiss franc or the Swiss National Bank did, well, they're looking at equities in, in Switzerland being down 15%. Uh, that's not a good outcome. People who think about Russia and, and that crisis will have a negative thought and so on and so forth. So I want to hear your view and see how you can visualize perhaps this for the audience to talk about when events like this happens and how it actually is possible to turn it out to a positive, which you clearly did in 2014? Well, the first thing that comes to mind, I mean, particularly with the Swiss bank and the movement in the Swiss franc yesterday, which I think was the 15th of January, is, you know, I've, I mean, number one, the thing that comes to my mind is markets and investments are risky. And these markets are unbounded. And as an investor or a trader or, you know, anyone, that that's something you, you, you don't want to forget. Mm -hmm. Because just because something has not happened before does not mean that it can't happen. And, you know, I saw, depending on how you wanted to measure it and look at it, that move in the Swiss franc was between a 30 and a 45 deviation move. And I don't have a 
but I think one of those is supposed to happen roughly once since the Big Bang. <laughs> and even in the fat-tailed market world that we live in, um, if adjusted for volatility by some measurements, you could argue that that Swiss franc move was the largest in any futures market in the last 35 years. Sure. The other bad, the other particularly notable thing about it was a lot of it was a gap, meaning that it traded 99 and the next trade was 117 sure. or whatever. I don't have to take that in front of me. So those are unusual large moves, but they still happen and they happen way more frequently than a normal curve would suggest. And, you know, when it comes to investment, I think primarily you need to try to make certain that a move like that does not kill you and that when you happen to be fortunate enough to be on the right side of a move like that, that you can maximize that gain. Sure. And, you know, a trend-following strategy tends to be built around the idea that nobody knows where the markets are going. They go they, – they, they're going to go higher and lower and in combinations of higher and lower that no one would have ever expected. Mm. And, you know, the, the Swiss franc is fresh in my mind from yesterday, but I, I note that – you know, correlations are something people use a lot, and I think often they're used improperly because they'll tend to – I think sometimes they can be used to encourage someone to take more risk. And someone might think, oh, well, I can keep this short position in the Swiss franc because I've got this long position in the euro to protect me. Mm. And those two are generally very highly correlated. I mean, I know it's early days. It only happened, as you said, uh, yesterday. But something like that, you mentioned that probably the biggest move in, you know, decades really in any market. If you adjust for volatility, if I mean, there obviously been bigger percentage, but if you look at what the typical quote unquote typical range is for the Swiss franc, mm. a move that, you know, and relative to that, the size of that move, it, it, it was remarkable. Does that make you think of something when it comes to risk management, something where you say, wow, you know, if this can happen, um, anything can happen really. And, 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 and frankly, you know, the signal that the Swiss central bank or national bank sent yesterday, um, you know, could be just the first signal that the world needs to be aware of that the things that we thought could never happen will happen. So, I mean, does this give you any, uh, I wouldn't say the word concern, because I think uh, that's what, what this strategy in particular does very well, which is risk management, but does it give you anything that you want to go back and, 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 and look closer at when it comes to these things uh, and how the portfolio uh, and risk management is structured? Well, um, what it is to me is a, a great reminder is that being trend followers and and we tend to already at least we like yeah i mean we already are, are cognizant that hey our whole method is built on the idea that nobody knows where these markets are going yeah and nobody knows you know you know now we're talking about oh my gosh crude oil's $47 a barrel mm. well i remember when we were talking oh my gosh crude oil's at $47 a barrel from the other way sure Meaning, can we believe it's this high? Yeah. And and 
certainly when crude was $12 a barrel, if you said, oh, well, it will be 147 as the stock market makes brand new highs, that would have been hard to believe then. Mm. And you could, everybody could, you know, it's, could name a thousand similar instances. So I like to think that we're pretty cognizant of the, the fact that there can be enormous, unexpected, huge moves. So but it, having one like that, having one like that is a great reminder. And it's a great reminder, like, look, how much, not, and what's important isn't how much, even if you'd made money on that move, you still need to go back and say, what if I hadn't? What if I'd had the opposite position on right. it? Because you could have. Yeah. And then not only that is I had the opposite position on, I lost money. What, you know, what if it was worse? Mm-hmm. What if I, you know, when would it, the worst point for this to have happened to me have been? Sure. How often has this happened? So we certainly went back and in, in, in the last day or two have done some study and run some modeling on, you know, what what are these types of moves? How often have they happened? How often have they happened against the previous predominant trend in the fav- – you know, what, you know, looked at more worst case outcomes? And then you have to sit there and say, okay, if this had happened in this situation – we would have lost X. Mm. Does X make sense for the frequency of this kind of occurrence? Sure. So, and, and then also remembering like X is going to be a big number and it's not going to be a comfortable – I mean you're not going to like it. But, but there's your, – your, your other option then is not to participate. Sure, and, and absolutely, and, and I think uh, I mean I think it, it, there are two reminders here, really. And I think uh, what you said about um, you know going back and looking at things—that's kind of what I was also trying to to um, get from you. But I mean, I think we were reminded yesterday not only that market can move significantly, but also that liquidity can be gone. You know, when yes. we want to trade, and so there were two lessons really for for the market. But I want to take. I want to take it to the next um, sort of uh, question, which I think is kind of related because you talk about the risk and that is the focus, of course, when you see something like that. But I know that you also, and we touched upon it in our last conversation a few months ago, you also run a program called the Optimal Program. And, mm-hmm. and in a sense, you have a very strong view about overall risk, where do you actually have the most risk? And maybe you could just spend a couple of minutes, you know, just reminding people uh, what that theory is about. But then once you've done that, I'd like you to explain how do you, in a much higher leveraged product, actually then at the same time mitigate the risk of losing everything? So if you can touch upon those two things, I think it would be really sure. helpful. Well, the idea behind the optimal program is that we think it is more efficient to invest less money in a more aggressive trading program or style. So if my typical asset, whatever it might be, let's say aims for 12% returns and, you know, 15% drawdowns, what 
what we would contend is, is for instance, in the optimal is that, that a, a much smaller, say a fifth or less investment in the optimal. So if, you know, a $2 million investment in the optimal is better than a $10 million investment in the previously mentioned more standard product. Yeah. And the, the number one thing, I and mean, if you want to talk about risk, let's take your worst case scenario. Let's imagine that not just the Swiss franc, but 15 different markets you had yesterday all did that against you. Mm. You're going to be out. And, and if 15 doesn't take you to zero, let's imagine all of them, every position you had did that. Yeah. Now, that's a long shot. But it's not an impossibility. In that case, the fact is, regardless of what I thought my volatility was in the less in the in the in the lower return product, Mm. I still lost all my money. Yeah. And in the optimal, particularly if I'm in a fund product, (laughs) sure, important to mention. yeah. Extraordinarily important yeah. to mention, and and you know there are disadvantages of funds. You pay extra fees, etc. But at the end of the day, someone else is taking your ultimate catastrophic risk, yeah. and that is, you know, those are risks that people tend to forget. Mm. They tend people tend to not value the, you know, they talk about in in no people don't value the the money spent on on the terrorist attack thwarted. Mm. Because we never see it. Sure. That you, you see what I mean? Yeah. And that's it's, it's the same thing as that. Oh well, this fund never went bankrupt, so that risk didn't exist. But mm. but it did exist, and, and and someone else bore it for you. Mm. And so that's where I would argue in your, you know, and even if you're in a portfolio sense, when I'm making a two million dollar investment instead of a ten million dollar investment. Ultimately, I've got 80% of my capital that's not at risk. And, and that is a, and, you know, and if you look at things like a fraud, whether it's a PFG type fraud or a Bernie Madoff type fraud, I, I mean, that's your, I mean, your most likely way to go to zero is fraud. Sure. Uh, I'm certain there have probably been some traders that, that have gone all the way to zero, but, but, I think there probably been more types of fraud. Sure. So just in summary, what you're really saying, which probably to many people are very counterintuitive, that instead of putting all your money in middle risk, middle return type strategies, you really should put a lot of your money in super low risk, super low return assets, wherever you can find them, but then spend some money and put it in very highly leveraged strategies, of course, which are based on sound principles and have, yes. you know, solid risk management and a proven track record without a doubt. But it, yeah. it's just... It needs to be a high return strategy. Yeah. And that's why I don't use the phrase high vol because you could have a, a losing strategy with, with a lot of volatility that's going to defeat the purpose. Sure. Now, in garnering high returns, of course, you're going to see increases in volatilities and increases in drawdowns. But I think people need to look at dollar terms rather than percentages, mm. and they need to realize, um, well, in the example I gave, a 20% drawdown in the $10 million investment equals 100% in the other one. Mm. And when just because you know in the $10 million investment, I'm assuming 
that that 15% drawdown, okay, let's say it gets worse. I'm assuming that 25%, 30% is the worst drawdown. Well, what if it gets down 60? Mm. There's no law that says it can't get down 60. Sure. You see what I mean? But is there any way that you, in your uh, way of doing this type of strategy, I mean, let's just say for argument's sake that if you put in 2 million in the optimal, you get the same mm-hmm. exposure as 10 million in the original. Yes. I mean, is it as simple as a five to one leverage or if things start going the the wrong way and, and you're heading towards mm-hmm. the 20% loss in the original, I mean, do you do things that try to avoid you getting to zero in the optimal? Well, I we, you know, when I do a comparison of this, I often will compare the optimal and rather than our own programs because they all are going to use similar what we like to think are effective risk management Sure. tools. Let's imagine what I'll just call the typical program. Okay. And so if I'm looking at the typical program with hedge fund ABC, and I'm sure ABC is great at it, versus the optimal, what I would say is this is one of the things that is going to work in your, well, it's going to work in your favor on the upside and the downside is the effects of compounding. And it's just as compounding begins to um exacerbate and accelerate up moves, compounding acts as a break on down moves. So if I, you know, let's imagine ABC versus optimal. If ABC gets down 10, optimal gets down 40. Mm. Well, if ABC loses another 10, optimal only loses 40 of 60 because we're already down. Sure. Okay, and so now you can imagine if optimal gets down 80, Mm. you know, as time goes on, the worst drawdown of those two programs is going to get closer. Sure. Because if you follow me, if if optimal's worst drawdown is 75% and and ABC's, and they're similar trend file, you know, and ABC's is 25, well, if ABC gets into a 35% drawdown, optimal's only going to be down probably not even 80 yeah because that's going to start to slow sure and now here's the huge point and this is why i get back to high return if you have drawdowns that deep you have to have the upside punch to recover from them sure i'm down 60 i got to make 150 to get even (laughs) yeah but that and there's the problem with your low return strategy sure if it gets down 40 and it's really good year is only up 2025, mm. that's going to be a huge mountain to climb. Yeah. Now, and I suspect I need to say in here that because it not because I need to say it because it's also very true, sure. past performance might have nothing to do with the future. Yeah. No, absolutely. But the optimal at least has has displayed the ability to make multiple hundred percents in a year. Mm. That doesn't mean that it will. Sure. That, but. If market conditions are favorable, it has that kind of punch that can allow it to recover from such a deep drawdown. So I would simply say this, you know, can an optimal investment get to zero? In a theoretical terms, somewhat no. It's kind of like running halfway to a wall. You you never get there. But let's imagine it did get to zero. What I would simply say is, 
how much did your $10 million investment lose yeah. if optimal got all the way to zero? And I can promise you, it is probably quite a bit more than 20%. Sure. And so part of what I would say is, is, and this is very difficult for people to do, I would suspect no one other than maybe me and Brents would ever do it, is <laughs> if it got to zero and the other one, let's say, got down 50 in that time frame, hmm. there's $3 million I didn't lose. Yeah, sure. And probably what I would suggest is you take 500000 of that and re-up the optimal. Sure. No, it's a very interesting thought, and I just want to bring it up in this short uh, conversation today because it's something, again, I mean, what we need to do is to always uh, educate, but we need to also bring uh, new ideas uh, mm -hmm. uh, and to, to the forefront of people's mind, and uh, and I think you're doing just that by, by uh, making this point, so I appreciate that. Now, I do want to ask you just a few more uh, of the other questions I had um, lined up. Talk to me a little bit about... Um, What's the conversations like nowadays with potential investors after a year like this? Did it change towards the end of the year? Do you think, did people warm up a little bit to uh, a strategy that no one predicted uh, a year ago would do so well? I think it's, it's warmed up. I think basically a year ago, no one had any or very few people had any interest in speaking. Sure. To, to a CTA, and now they want to speak to a CTA. Sure. But of course, this leads us into one of the great problems of being an asset manager is what is, I've seen described recently as the behavior gap. Mm -hmm. And that is the difference between what a I think you see a lot of times in stocks what the S&P 500 has made versus what the average Charles Schwab account has made. Right. And that gap is enormous. And I could tell you in our situation, it's the same thing. Mm. Six months ago, right before a huge great run, you couldn't get anybody to talk to a CTA. Yeah. So what's going to happen? So people want to talk to us now, but it isn't like people are just mailing checks and opening accounts. They're going to have discussions with us now. And then six months from now, if the, if the performance continues to be good, then they're going to get convinced, okay, CTAs are back. Let's start our year and a half due diligence process. And then they open an account in 2017 if we've continued to do well. Mm. Well, guess what? You just missed three years of good performance. Mm. So what's, you know, and now you've queued yourself up to invest, do well for six months, and then hit another drawdown. Sure. You see what I mean? Yeah. And but so that's the, you know, from the asset raising point of view, a very frustrating thing. The behavior gap is, is enormous. And, but, you know, out on the, you know, basically – Nobody wanted to talk. Well, we got to see this thing turn around. We need to see now. Basically, that has the the 
the ice has frozen, but it is not spring. Sure. I mean, excuse me, the ice yeah. is melted, yeah. but it is not spring. No, I, I appreciate that. But, I, you know, I think you bring up another issue, which is, uh, sure, they, you know, in certain investors could spend the next three years um, doing due diligence and, 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 and crunching numbers and to convince themselves that this is a, a good strategy. Um, despite the fact that, you know, the, the outcome of their research will be the same as it has been for the last 20 or 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other problem uh, as an industry that um, systematic traders face is what we saw uh, after 2008, which was a, was a big inflow, which came relatively quick, as far as I recall. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, 2009, a lot of money came in. Uh, it even continued into 2010. But the flip side was it also disappeared very quickly once people either got bored, surprised, or just disappointed um, for whatever reason. Um, so how the do we? The other thing I would add to yeah. that, Niels, is most of that money flows to the largest managers. Sure. I think you know your top three or four, and you know part of the reason is they're really good. Sure. So that, of course. You know, but but uh, or some of them are really good, I should say. Um, but there's a that money tends to flow only to the biggest brand, you know, type of brand names. Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt. So no, no, that's fine. No, my, my, my only, my only question was really, if you look at it from a business point of view, uh, Scott, how do, how do you, and how do we avoid a repeat? Meaning do we need to look differently at, uh, taking money, uh, in, I mean, a lot of firms after, you know, uh, after the drought, let's call it that, in, in asset raising for many years, would love to see money coming through the door. But, you know, are we shooting ourselves in the foot if we just take any money coming in? Well, I think that that's, you know, what we try to do is we try to, to I mean, everybody tries to educate clients, mm-hmm. and I'm not saying that you shouldn't keep trying to do that, but in the last 15 years, I've found that to be a, a bit of a Don Quixote, you know, just swinging wooden swords at windmills. It's very difficult, and, and, and that is not to criticize. I mean, their behavior patterns are... are they're pretty well established, and I think if you read, you know, Kahneman and Tversky and Schiller to a point, those behavior patterns are very, very difficult to break. Mm. And we have heuristics and biases that that are consistent and across cultures, and 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 are very difficult difficult to break. But you know, obviously, you want to try to encourage, you want to try to educate. I think, you know, one thing we try to do is, you know, if you read our monthly letters to clients, when things are bad, they tend to be very encouraging. And when things are great, they tend to be very discouraging. Sure. Like, hey, we love it. This is great. But But. let's put the brakes on the hubris here. This is what we expect over decades. This needs to be an investment, you know, over you know, the things we try to stress is the holding period mm. of of the accounts. You know, our aggressive program is made just under 20, like 1984, I think, compounded over 11 years. Mm. That's pretty good. That's extraordinary. It would seem like it would be very difficult to have lost money in that. Mm. But we have had a number of accounts that have closed 
unprofitable. Sure. And 81% of those close within two years of opening. Yeah. And so if I could, you know, if I could get clients to do one thing, mm. it would be to adopt a five, at least a five, really more like a seven-year time frame. Right. Pick the amount that you're willing to lose and the program you're most comfortable with. And as long as that loss max has not been breached, I would wait for five years to reevaluate. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean that I wouldn't track and make sure that Covenant Capital, I would make sure Covenant Capital is doing what they said they would do every day. I would make sure that that we indeed were being long-term trend following and that the position sizes were consistent and that the losers lost about the same amount every time, et cetera, et cetera. So, but as far as a, you know, a, a macro evaluation of the investment and of trend following, et cetera, you probably looked at five to 10 to 15 years of data in making your decision to enter. That argument can't be broken in nine months. Sure. Because certainly in that 10 year period, you saw nine month periods that weren't very good. Yeah. So I, you know, I think if you could get people on that time frame, that would be a big advantage. Yeah. No, it's a it's a great theme actually for for you know to to almost end with when when we're looking into 2015. I think that that's uh, very important. Are there any other things that you want to bring up before we close? I've just got a final question left, uh, Scott. But is there anything else you you just want to bring up, or do you think we've covered sort of the main points uh, as in this short uh, episode? As usual, Niels, I think you have done a, an excellent job of questioning, and I, I think we've hit on all the main topics. Great stuff. Now, I know you said that this, and this could be the answer to my to my last question, what you just said before, but I will ask it anyway. If you look at 2015, and if you could wish for something, <laughs> <laughs> what would you like to wish for? Well, in a in the realm of my business and trading, that's that's fine. Well, I would. That's an interesting question. Mm. I would I would probably wish for. I, I would say I, I would probably wish that we did not have any more nine percent, ten percent discontinuous price moves sure. in, in overnight markets. Those aren't <laughs> the most fun. Um, you know, and like always, we're always hopeful that there will be a, a decent amount of good trends that unfold. Mm. Mm. You know what? If I could wish for one thing, it would be that, that what I talked about investors, that yeah. investors and allocators would would reassess their if infatuation with size mm. and spend more time interested in performance and theory. Yeah. I think that would serve well, I, 
And that isn't to say that <clears throat> something's a bad investment because it's large. Sure. But there is a lot of academic evidence that suggests, and if you just think about market liquidity alone, that suggests that that it that an equally talented manager that's smaller is probably going to do better with your money. Mm. So I would like to see allocators and investors reassess this infatuation of of you know size equals quality sure because because a lot of times size just equals good marketing sure and and take more of an assessment of of performance and and below the level of performance is how is that performance generated yeah and so that perhaps we're not as fooled by by num you know by a past performance. Sure. No, I agree with that thought completely, Scott. But I, but I will finish off by just saying what I really enjoyed about 2014 were two things. One, it was a year where CTAs had very strong returns, but without any disasters in stocks or bonds, which often people are labeling us for, that we can only make money if the world breaks apart. You know, that wasn't the case. The other thing I would say, and actually is that some of the large managers that we all know did have very solid years, some mm -hmm. of them even their best years ever. So in, in a sense, it was just a very good year all around, in my opinion. And, and I hope that we can build from that and actually enlarge the overall investor base in the industry um, because, again, I think we've proven a point. Um, I, would, <clears throat> I would tend to agree, although I don't know that a point's been proven. <laughs> I think that that uh, you know, as I've said, I think on my last thing, people are inherently they don't like systematic trading sure. and they hate trend following, sure. and so there is too much of the investing world. There is no amount of empirical data that's ever going to overcome that. Yeah. And yeah. one of my favorite things is that now all of a sudden, trend following is all of a sudden beta. Mm. Right? If you've seen this, like, sure. oh, well, that's just beta because you're yeah. just doing this. And I'm like, wait a second. The definition of, of and, you know, the definition of a, of a beta is just the market inherent movement. Mm. If you are actively selecting when to get in and when to get out, now it might be replicable. Mm. Somebody might replicate it for much lower fees. That, that's fine. But I love it then when something starts to work. Oh no, that 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 didn't really. That's just beta. Well, sure. you know, and and so, you know, I I, I would hope, but I, I don't have high hopes that that trend following will be accepted on in CNBC. But but I, frankly, if it was, maybe it wouldn't do as well. So no, exactly. I'm it's... I'm fine with our little corner of the world that we have. Yeah, absolutely. I think our our the our media world it doesn't have to include uh, the 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 big channels anyway. Scott, as usual, great to talk to you. Unfortunately, this time uh, is up because it was just a short episode. But of course, for those who want to hear much more from Scott, they should go and listen to our previous conversation on Top Traders Unplugged. I want to thank you again for being here on the podcast, sharing your insights. And I do want to congratulate you on a very solid, or should I say outstanding year uh, as well. And I want to wish you and your firm the very best for 2015, which I hope to catch up with you um, in the very near future. 
Okay. Thanks, Niels. I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate yours putting together this whole series for people. I think it's very educational. Wonderful. All the best. Take care. Thank you. See you. Bye. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.